Whatever you choose to do for your life work, make it something that you would do if you never got paid. Mm. That you just, you just like doing it. Now, I have to admit sometimes, um, so for instance, I, I have um, family members who are artists, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they need help translating their gift into cash. How do you get your art seen? How that kind of thing, right? right. Um, but increasingly, there are more and more folks who are happy to help others with the business part of getting their gift um, into the marketplace. Um, and so I would say, um, encourage anyone who wants to give me a call, I'll happily talk to you and or refer you to a lot of my friends who were doing it. And I know you know bunches of people that can help folks make that transition. I, I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simons, yeah. I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simons, yeah. Discover my gift, yeah, yeah. Discover my gift, yeah, yeah. But David E. Simons. Welcome to another episode of How I Discovered My Gift with yours truly, David D. Simons. I am joined here by an amazing, amazing person, entrepreneur, leader, teacher, and someone I consider a friend. I'm excited, delighted, and, and, and energized to share with you guys this amazing man uh, who I've known for some years, Dr. Phil Lewis. He's an investor. He's the owner and uh, operator of the Carthage Investment Group, uh, headquartered, I believe, in upstate New York. Um, and uh, they they do some amazing things. So you'll hear more about that later. But I, <clears throat> I've just grown to observe and learn uh, from a distance just how Dr. Phil operates as a person, how he treats his wife, um, just the demeanor he is. He's always sharp. Uh, he's witty. He's, uh, he's just an all-around great guy, somebody you, you, you just you meet and you auto, um, automatically admire. So you guys will get to peer into his world, uh, some of the wisdom he, he's going to share with you. So, Dr. Phil, thank you so much for being on the show. Truly an honor. Hey, David, thank you for having me. I, I can't uh, tell you how much I appreciate you having me on. I uh, have uh, appreciated our friendship and uh, truly amazed at your success. You're really doing a bang-up job. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So I'd like to dig in right from the beginning in your journey, Dr. Phil. Just take us through, you know, from your childhood to today um, and the path that you, you took to get to where you are today. Sure. Um, well, I think the major thing is to, uh, I, I am a product of a hardworking faithful African-American family. Um, uh, my parents, uh, my mom's family, 
um, moved from South Central Virginia to Pittsburgh in the 1920s, part of the Great Migration. And uh, my father's family uh, were from the West Indies. His uh, father um, was uh, from St. Thomas. His mother was from Barbados. And uh, I think I must have been around 12 or 13 when I heard her complain that she thought his family were really Puerto Ricans who were passing for people <laughs> of St. Thomas. And she was really upset about that. At any rate, the, the thing for me was that um, both of my parents uh, were hardworking, they were smart, they were, as most black families, very concerned about raising their children in a way that encouraged them to be successful and almost to not even be aware of the kind of uh, racism uh, that surrounded us. And, and I have to admit, uh, it worked so well that I remember when I was in high school, uh, we were walking to downtown Washington, D.C., a bunch of black fellows and I, and uh, one of them yelled at a white guy across the street, hey, honk, you go home. And I said, oh, man, don't treat him like that. You know, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so the other piece of that is that my dad was a cryptographer. Uh, he was, uh, so he uh, was in the signal corps in the, in the army. And um, so he was responsible for handling um, classified messaging uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, which was his last duty station and <laughs> his his work was so um, secret that he never told me what he did uh, it wasn't until uh, i was uh, in rtc uh, in a military science class and i found out figured out what dad did and i came home and said dad i know you're a cryptographer <laughs> and he just smiled he never said anything else. He just smiled and let that go. And then my mom... For those that don't know, what, what is a cryptographer? What, oh, yeah. A cryptographer is a person who um, both creates and um, breaks codes for communications. So all the secret uh, codes that were used during World War II uh, or in any wars, right? Uh, but particularly during World War II, the Korean War, and, and on, my dad was involved in both creating and decrypting uh, codes. So that's what a cryptographer does more gotcha. or less. So it's, it's a lot of mathematics, really, um, okay. trying okay. to figure things out. And and that stood me well, right, because uh, I, I love math and science. And uh, uh, actually, at the time that I was leaving uh, high school, I was trying to decide between going to med school or law school. And what really pushed me toward med school was that I was so much better in science than I thought I was at uh, literature or writing or that sort of thing. So, and a lot of that came from dad. Love that, love that. So you were telling us about your mom as well. Yeah, well, <clears throat> Uh, her parents, as I said, moved from South Central uh, Virginia, uh, the area around Martinsville, Danville. And uh, they were uh, 
light enough to pass. And I think it, it, it particular uh, though her father uh, was the darkest of his siblings. And I think it really angered them, you know, the, the, the kind of racism that there was in Virginia. And so they moved to Pittsburgh, um, uh, worked in the steel mills, worked hard, but bought land outside of Pittsburgh. And that land developed into uh, a company that has now eventuated into Carthage Investment. So it was really her parents uh, and, and, and their investment that eventuated into Carthage. My mom uh, was a nurse. Uh, she was one of the first nurses to agree to work for Planned Parenthood in Pittsburgh in the 50s. And it wasn't until I found an article about that, uh, actually probably about 10 years ago, that I realized how radical a move that was. Uh, so, uh, but both of them were about um, being successful, uh, being good Christians, taking care of your family, uh, and family was important. They were both about that. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. And I can see those qualities in you. And so mm -hmm. when, when you, it's kind of like you're a blend of your, both your mother and your, and your father, just from, just from hearing a little bit about them. And, you know, from the, obviously the mathematical mind and the, the, the skill set you'd have to have being a cryptographer and then the medical approach that your, your, your mom, uh, as a nurse. Um, and so they, they obviously sounds like had an influence on your life. So talk to me about now this journey from childhood into, you know, going into college. You said you just, you decided to go down this route of, of medical, the medical route where you could have also equally gone to, I imagine engineering, uh, or, or even, um, the legal route. Um, so talk to us through there about your, the development into your career world. Well, yeah. Um, uh, I started in college uh, as a pre-med, uh, thinking that I might want to go to med school, but I wasn't sure. Uh, I had taken in high school what was then, but would have been in that day, equivalent to an AP chemistry course. And so I really enjoyed chemistry and physics. And, um, and indeed, um, I, I, I was trying to decide really between uh, medicine and law. And, um, but because I really enjoyed uh, science and math more, uh, medicine seemed to make more sense to me. Also because um, I was in college in the 60s and the idea of being a physician and uh, being able to help the black community was you know, a big thing in my mind. Uh, so much so that I'll never forget once I, I got to Johns Hopkins as a freshman medical student and they had an assistant professor of pediatrics come and talk to our class. So this is 120 uh, young minds just got to Hopkins, right? And, um, and he, said, he looks out and he says, um, how many of you are here because you want to make money? I didn't think anyone would raise their hand, but three or four people did. I thought that was outlandish, but okay, fine. How many are you are, are you are here because uh, you want to help people? So I'm raising my hand. 
So he says, how many people are here just because you just like thinking about the human body? You just enjoy thinking about the human body. Three people raised their hand. And uh, he said, those three should stay. The rest of you should leave. <laughs> and, and the point that he was making was that it takes so much energy to be a physician, just to become a physician, but then to be a physician, that if you're not just loving it, you need to go do something else. And um, so, but thankfully for me, uh, I uh, um, found uh, epidemiology as a, a route in medicine that made sense to me, which is highly mathematical. It's, it's uh, 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 basically based on statistics and trying to understand the occurrence of uh, illness and injury based on statistics. And, and it, it is part of that second half of medicine, preventive medicine. It's about how do you keep, keep people well, keep them from being injured, from being ill to begin with. Um, so that, that's been my career. I, I've really enjoyed it. And um, so um, that's how I made the transition basically from high school through uh, to, to my career in medicine. So, so um, how long did you spend in the ep 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 epidemiology? epidemiology? Yeah, yeah, no, it's not, a, <laughs> not an easy thing. In fact, I, I tell people all the time now that uh, most of my life I've had to explain what an epidemiologist is, except during the pandemic, uh, right at the beginning, the New York Times had an article that said, epidemiologists rock. <laughs> so ever since then, it's been, it's been not so bad. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the route for me and the interest for me in epidemiology, as I said, is really about keeping people well. And, and it actually blends into this whole uh, thought that I then developed uh, by God's grace, you know, this idea of enlightened capitalism. Mm -hmm. Because in fact, the Nash equilibrium uh, and and for your listeners who have not seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, um, it's, it's worth seeing, if nothing else, uh, for the bar scene. And, and there, you can go on YouTube now and just type in the bar scene from Beautiful Mind and it'll come up. And what's important about this is that it, it is, a, of course, a dramatized uh, account of how John Nash came up with the idea for the Nash Equilibrium which is the mathematical underpinning for sustainable development, for enlightened capitalism. Those are basically synonymous terms. And he won the Nobel Prize for this. And, and, and the essence of it is that raw capitalism that's described in uh, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, that assumes that wealth is generated by each person being left to do what... Um, God has given them talents and interests to do. And by doing that, people produce a surplus of high quality um, uh, services and products. And that generates trade and increased wealth for the community as a whole. Enlightened capitalism and the Nash Equilibrium say that in fact, the greatest wealth is generated when I or any individual economic entity does what's in its best interest 
and the community's best interest simultaneously. Mm. Now that just happens to sound like the second most important commandment when the lawyer asks Jesus what was important. And Jesus said, love God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your might. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. It is it is it's no accident mm. <laughs> that those things say in fact the same thing. Mm. So, um, uh, and indeed, I mean, a part of my work in epidemiology has led into exactly that same train of thought. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, so your work in sorry, I hear a little echo. Epidemiology, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yes, your work, your work in that realm, yeah. um, uh-huh. and the combination in the financial realm. How did that yeah. the two merge and collide? Oh, oh, well, <clears throat> uh, first because um, I, I did a combined. Uh, MD and Master's of Public Health program while I was in med school. Uh, and then I left, uh, I went to Walter Reed. I did my internship and residency in preventive medicine. I was chief of preventive medicine down at Fort Hood. Uh, I was a young captain in a colonel slot. So I got a lot of experience that I would not otherwise ever have seen for like 10, 15 years or more in my career. Um, I then went back to Hopkins and did a fellowship in occupational environmental medicine with a concentration on um, immune reactions in the skin. So I was combining dermatology and occupational environmental medicine. And so uh, the professor I was working with and I were doing some consulting work for a consortium of chemical companies uh, that were having problems with uh, immune reactions in the skin to acrylates. And uh, most people, that won't mean anything to them, but um, anyone who knows about nail salons, the the chemical that's generally used to put uh, nails on is methyl methacrylate. Uh, And so uh, when I went to Roman Haas to deliver some of this data, uh, they said, gee, would you be interested in coming to be an associate corporate medical director? And I had never thought about that. I thought I was going to stay and teach at Hopkins. Um, But around that time, the research grants from NIH were becoming harder to get. I thought, okay, I'll I'll go to Roman Haas, which was in Philadelphia, um, and and I'll stay there for a couple of years. I'll continue to teach down at Hopkins. I'll collect some data, and then I'll come back to the Hopkins and teach full time. Well, I got here, and promotions came along, and the kids got settled. And I was making a lot of money. And uh, and most importantly, relative to what we're talking about, <clears throat> I was vice president for environmental health, safety, and sustainable development for Roman Haas. Roman Haas was probably the fourth or fifth largest chemical company in the United States at the time. It was a multinational. Um, and so I had an opportunity to see how business was run. Hmm. Um, and to learn, because part of the thing I had to do was to uh, staff one of the committees for the board. And so I got to see how all this worked. And so all of a sudden, it was easy then to translate that uh, combined with the other things I was doing and to saying, well, wait a minute, I can help our family company make the jump to light speed here. 
so uh, Dow bought Roman Haas in 2009 and they paid a $34 a share premium to do it, which mean meant I had a lot of money that I hadn't expected. Mm. So I took all that money, uh, plowed it back into our family company and shifted us uh, from real estate. If, if you don't mind, could yeah. you share what that what Dow bought um, Roman Haas for? What, what What's the amount that they- Oh they yeah, for? sure, sure. Uh, Dow was uh, particularly good at producing large volume industrial chemicals. But Roman Haas was very good and specific at what was called specialty chemicals. So for instance, uh, it would produce chemicals for uh, the electronics industry for making motherboards for computers and that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of very uh, specialized areas, right? And so Dow wanted Roman Haas in order to help Dow make the transition to uh, maintaining its industrial chemical base, but to be more agile and more customer facing and better at specialty chemicals. Uh, so that's why they were interested in Roman Haas. Mm. And what was the, do you remember the purchase amount? What, what, what Dow paid to get, uh, to buy or, or a rough estimate? I don't remember the number. I'd have to look it up. I, okay. I do remember the, the premium on the shares was $34 a share. And in fact, the, the tragedy to it all really was that it didn't work out the way Dow had intended because <clears throat> they actually got into a bidding war with BASF. BASF, as I recall, had cash. Dow was depending on money that they were getting from a deal uh, with the Kuwaitis. The Kuwaitis backed out and they were some billions of dollars short. Mm. <laughs> and they had signed a non-recent contract to buy Roman Haas. So for there was a time at which Roman Haas was actually worth more than Dow because the Roman Haas share price was $78 a share when the Dow share price had sunk to like $6 a share. Mm. So, um, so it, it, um, it, it, I don't think it ever resulted in the kind of growth that Dow intended. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing happened when they acquired DuPont, because if you look, they've now respun out <laughs> into uh, at least two different companies. It might be three, but I'd have to go back and look. Yeah. So Dow's been down a, a, a rough room. Um, and in fact, I mean, even at the time, um, the chemical industry was not the best industry in terms of stock performance. Uh, to be involved in. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the only reason Roman Haas was up on the block at all is that the Haas family, who owned 34% of the stock, decided they were willing to sell. And until then, it wasn't going to be up on the block. Interesting. Gotcha. So you're, um, sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying that you now, um, you know, working at Roman Haas, you're a VP and you are now uh, partaking in this opportunity. It sounds like a once in a lifetime kind of move, <laughs> as you're sharing that Dow is purchasing uh, Roman Haas. So now this influx of, of cash and you said, okay, what are you going to do with this? And you, you put it into the family business. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay, t- talk to us about that and and how uh, uh, that whole process. And oh well, I, you know, it, it is Rome, uh, Carthage is was technically known as a family office, uh, which means all of the money invested is uh, family members. So it's not open, you know, to just anyway. But, you know, so, so the issue then was that I had to sit down with my brothers. My cousins, my relatives were all invested and said, hey, okay, um, we've got this additional money. These are some ideas. What do you think? So we all talked it through and agreed. So as I said, we we moved um, away from real estate uh, into a much larger portfolio so that 70% of our holdings are in Fortune 500 companies from um, Apple, Microsoft, uh, uh, United Healthcare, etc. Right, um, but thirty percent are in startups, and we very specifically look for startups that uh, will fit within an enlightened capitalist approach, mm-hmm. because we view that those will have the greatest return over over time. So, for instance. Uh, one of the groups that we're invested in, it's Global Neighbor Incorporated. Mm. And they use visible light, visible light from uh, the blue wavelengths part of the visible spectrum and the red part, along with artificial intelligence to be able to kill weeds and weed seeds Mm. so that you can uh, substantially improve the profitability of organic farming Mm-hmm. And it is an essential part of what's called regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. Regenerative agriculture is where you don't even have to plow the ground. You use uh, animals uh, to help uh, fertilize the ground and rotate that with crops uh, so that you're actually drawing CO2 down into the soil. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's been estimated if 1% of the currently farmed land in the world was changed each year into regenerative agriculture, we would reverse climate change within 20 years. Wow. With no change in the use of fossil fuels. Really? Yeah, really. Uh, so, um, and so we're, we're uh, so that, that's an example of, of one of the companies we're involved in. Uh, another one uh, proven uh, is a group that used blockchain technology to allow um, folks who are in the gig economy to easily house their own human resource records hmm. so they can instantly switch from one company to another hmm. and they have full control over their lives. Interesting. Um, yeah. So... Uh, so this is that's thirty percent the startup. You said seventy percent mm-hmm. is the Fortune five hundred element. Yes, um, and you know I'm just so intrigued by this because this is a family owned um, investment group. Uh, your mother started, and you ca- you you were carrying along, and I imagine you're going to ca- keep it going and for per- perpetuity. So how I'm sure just I'm just 
asking the questions that I'm thinking listeners would ask listening to this interview. How did you guys keep the organization and separate family and business? Or do you have, you know, like this is, this is, we're dealing with money, livelihood. We're dealing with, you know, things. You got to look at things from an uh, uh, investor angle. You got to take emotions and all that. How do you guys operate? And and obviously you've been able to do this for a long time. How do you maintain that? Well, it's first by the grace of God to tell you the truth, literally, right? Because um, my cousins and my brothers and I often marvel um, that uh, we have always gotten along so well. I cannot remember any time over our entire lives that we actually had a fight. Um, yeah, I know. It's one of those things I just... Um, I can remember watching um, TV shows or movies or reading literature where family was getting along. And I thought, what is that? How, how does that happen? <laughs> right. So that's one thing. Uh, we've always gotten along. Uh, the other thing is that everything's open. <clears throat> uh, anybody can look at anything, anytime they want. Um, we try to make sure that the teams that are looking at uh, new acquisitions, uh, that all the partners have an opportunity um, to be involved. Anyone can be involved if they'd like. Um, and, uh, and we entertain uh, suggestions from anyone. So one of our, one of my nephews, excuse me, in fact, suggested that we invest in Tesla. Uh, even though uh, I teach environmental medicine down at Penn, and uh, I had had uh, some reports from one of the residents that Tesla had a really terrible environmental health and safety record, that they particularly were not very good on safety. And so I wasn't really up for investing in Tesla, but because our nephew suggested it, and then uh, we have an analytical model that we agree with that uh, combines uh, both a short and a long-term evaluation of companies uh, and produces a, a, a weighted score. And um, so once uh, a company gets above what we consider a threshold for investment, then we'll consider them. And Tesla was well above. So, even though I didn't think it was a good idea because our nephew thought it was a good idea and it had met the cut, we invested. Um, and we've done it exceedingly well as Tesla has done well. However, uh, it is also at the point where we're reconsidering because Elon Musk has turned out to be, to have what I call the Steve Jobs problem, right? Because you're good in one thing, you think you can do everything. And his thing with Twitter <laughs> uh, was just a really bad move. <clears throat> He's really taking his eye off the ball. So uh, we'll see. Uh, but it, it is our our openness, our willingness to have everyone involved. But I think it's, it's the fact that, and this was an important aspect, uh, particularly for my mom, um, that family was important. Wow. Respect. So how how can one get started with some such 
such an endeavor, creating their own private family investment group? What, what, what would you, what, what does somebody need to have to get that started and get that going? Well, yeah, I, the first thing I encourage people to do is to have a good life plan for themselves. And uh, that should include five segments. Metaphysical, uh, relational, intellectual, physical, and financial. You should have a plan that includes all five of those areas and ways to develop across all five of those areas. Because it's important to recognize that money will not solve problems in your life, really. Everyone thinks if I just had a million dollars, I'd be great. Not true. Because first thing, no matter how much money you have, you can outspend what you bring in. Second thing, the more money you have, the more likely it is people are going to be asking you for things, particularly folks in your family. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a balanced approach to life. And I say to people all the time, you can be Muslim, Jewish, agnostic, atheist, whatever. I highly recommend Christianity as the best answer to the metaphysics to be able to give you a clear view of um, how the world is put together, how you fit in, uh, how you figure out where you're going. And then to be able to look at money as what it is, a tool and a gift. So that's number one. Have a good life plan. Number two, know the following percentages and discipline around money. You give away 10% of more or more of any cash that comes your way. And there's a technical term, cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. so that's any money that's coming your way. Mm -hmm. Simplistically, right? Right. right. You give 10% or more away you invest 50% or more, and you spend 40% or less. The importance to that is that your assets are always growing quicker than what you're spending. And over time, the amount that you have to spend is going up, but you're never caught short. Next, investing does not mean put the money in a bank. The only thing, and I'll, I have a lot of friends who work for banks, <laughs> fairly major banks, Goldman Sachs, etc. Banks are good for liquidity, money that you need to immediately pay bills or you need some cash immediately. That's it. Investing means putting your money at the very least in a um, equity-based fund that mirrors the S&P 500. And if you're relatively conservative, you can split it 75% that way and 25% in a bond fund, right? That way, uh, your assets are growing on average somewhere between 8 to 12% a year, uh, which uh, far outstrips the 0. 2% the bank is going to give you. Um, and that's where you ought to start. Um, 
until you have a million dollars or more to invest. Because it's one, only once you get above that level that you have enough to be able to diversify well enough so that if something goes out, you're not hurt. Mm-hmm. That's, wow. That's wow. Let's go. Wow. Let's go. Um, if you don't um, mind, you, me, you can answer or not answer. Where where did the fund start as mm-hmm. far as the capacity it could hold as from the starting? And where is, where is the fund been at its highest or where is the fund today if that's the same answer um from from a perspective i just want to kind of give listeners a a possibility of what's possible uh well okay i I am restricted by (laughs) our family for discussing the 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 worth of our of our holdings absolutely given what i've said you can assume it's more than a million dollars and i can tell you it's much more than that right so that's we'll we'll just say that um um and what was the other part of your question? Yeah, where did it start? Like how? Oh, like, where did it start? Like, yeah, I, it started from my mother's parents buying land outside of Pittsburgh, hmm. and, and and even and, you know, and it was astounding. Um, I think it must have been when I was in med school sometime that I finally realized how outrageous that was. Here, these were people who had been sharecroppers. <laughs> in South Central Virginia, and they're smart enough to understand that they need to invest. <laughs> and they invest in some land, and it's that land that was the basis for Carthage. Wow, so that land was sold and then put into the fund? Or- yes. Okay, yes. beautiful, yeah. beautiful. And yeah. um, I imagined they sold the land because land is always ever increasing in value. So they sold it at a good time in value. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and although the the important thing is that real estate is tricky, right? You have to really know what you're doing. Now, uh, my youngest daughter, if she hears this podcast, will quickly raise her hand and say, well, I told dad to get more into real estate, but (laughs) keep in mind that real estate you have to, most real estate appreciates at about three to 4% a year. As opposed to remember, I said, just an equity S&P 500 mirroring fund will grow at what, eight to 12, right? Now, there's no question because my daughter wanted us to buy <clears throat> some brownstones in Brooklyn. Yeah, in Brooklyn because she was sure that that market was going to take off. And I didn't think she was right. Well, she was right. And it far exceeded, right? It, 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 so yeah, we should have. But um, we still invest in, in uh, real estate, but it's got to be the right thing. Gotcha, gotcha. So we, we t- distilling all of this, when you when you think about your dominant gift, Dr. Phil, what, what is your dominant gift? I think my dominant gift is a rational mind and being able to understand the importance of routine. Oh, wow. Yeah, see, it it dawned on me some time ago. God has created the world 
so that most of it runs on these endless routines, you know, and, and on one level, they would seem to be boring, but they are the essence of life, right? Whether it's how the oceans, waves come in and out, how the tide moves, how the planets are in their, you know, orbits, all just routine, right? So, um, part of, I, I, I like to call myself an effector machine, right? Yeah. So I make a plan, I know what I want to do and I follow it out. So my, my usual day, I get up at six o'clock, I say my prayers, I go to the gym, I'm in the gym at eight o'clock. Uh, my workout routine is about 110 minutes. Uh, I, I do um, uh, yeah, uh, about 40 to 55 minutes of weights, about uh, 55 minutes of uh, uh, cardio and about um, uh, 10 minutes of stretching. Um, then I head out, I run some errands, and I come back to the office here and I'm working from about one or two o'clock till about 6.30 or seven. And my wife and I kick back for a couple hours, watch the news, watch some TV, that sort of stuff. Um, lights are out at 10, 10.30. That's it. Sunday, I do not go to the gym. I go to church. And um, I, one of the, you know, uh, interestingly, I read in a CIA report that there are 38,000 different denominations of Christianity. Mm. Uh, but most Christians in the world are either Roman Catholic and the next greatest number are Anglican slash Episcopalians. Right? Mm. And so, um, my family were Episcopalian and I grew up in the Episcopal tradition. And one of the things that uh, the Episcopal tradition has is the Book of Common Prayer. So it has you know, devotionals for uh, morning, noon, evening, and then there's a, a form called Compline before you go to bed. So I use the morning prayer when I'm on the elliptical runner, uh, uh, when I'm working out, and, and use it other times during the day. So um, that's worked for me. But as I said, on Sunday, we, 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 we go to church and, and we alternate between uh, the Episcopal Church and Gail still likes uh, non-denominations. So right now, we uh, uh, I think it's um, ooh, um, Change Church. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we hang out there and so, yeah. Love it. So... So you've had this gifting of this rap, you said the rational mind, like, so this, this routine, discipline kind of attitude you've had since a child. Uh, I, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know when it started, right? It was one of those things. That, that's why whenever people say they pull them out, themselves up by their bootstraps, I'm saying, wait a minute. Your dad existed, your mom existed, people took care of you when you couldn't take care of yourself. No one does this on their own. That's just, that's just crazy. So mm -hmm. to try to understand where, how I am came about is tough. Mm -hmm. But you, 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 you touched on the fact that I'm the oldest of my siblings. Mm -hmm. And there's no question that 
my mom and dad had a great, like most firstborn, had a great impact on me. So my dad was very organized, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, and so I suppose I got that from him. But at what age it actually clicked in, I don't remember. Because mm. um, I certainly had times when I wasn't organized. <laughs> so I can't tell you how old uh, it was. But I, certainly by the time I was in high school, um, wow. it, it started kicking in. Because yeah. I'm sure maybe you've probably read books about like the compound effect or slight edge uh, mm-hmm. where... You know, a lot of people think success happens like one big jolt, but it's it's a series of compounded daily habits. Just like I'm sure it's same with investing. It's not it's not a big jolt right away. It's it's the consistency over time. If if you could if you could just talk about that, you know, because we in the show we talk about three phases: discovering your gift and developing, and then eventually distributing it. <clears throat> um, from the development standpoint, what is uh, how has the the power of the compound effect had on your you know this routine attitude that you have? How's it had uh, that effect has had on your life, your business, and 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 then how has the the power of compound effect ha- happened in your investing in your financial in the finance realm? Well, it's interesting because you know they, they parallel. <laughs> I mean. Um, It often astounds me that anyone plays the lottery. Uh, I've even tried to explain to um, those in my family who continue to play the lottery that you do much better taking that $20 and put it in Carthage or in any investment fund than you know, trying to win the lottery. Um, you're much less likely to win the lottery than get hit by lightning. Substantially less likely. <laughs> mm. um, and the importance of that is that, of what you were saying, that most of life is building. Starting with what you have and continuing to build in a direction that hopefully you're talking to God and got some idea that this is where God wants you to go. The impact for me is that every day I learn something new. Every day. There's something where I can improve something about my routine, something about how we're investing, something about how we're looking at companies, something about how we're even thinking about the future. Um, So uh, there's no question that that idea of... uh, building and growing every day, uh, learning from the routines. You learn in the midst of the routines. Um, uh, you know, uh, people who have seen my workout routine, right? So it's just down. So the, the, the uh, leg press, <clears throat> right now I'm at 1335, right? And so... I'll put the weights on and then it advances by putting, if I can get uh, a set, a repetition of 12, right? At a particular weight, then I put five pounds more on the next time I do it. So inevitably someone will come up and see this rack 
right? Almost full. And then these two little two and a half pound weights on the hands. And they'll go, what is that? I said, that's how you get from zero to here. <laughs> a little bit at a time, moving along, keeping it. Mm, that's good. That's good. So if you could, the last two questions I have for you, Dr. Phil, um, if you could tell others or how does, how does one make themselves valuable to the marketplace? Mm. Um, you know, because you've obviously done that in in multiple multiple spaces, right? From the, from mm-hmm. the medical space, uh, and now with your family in the financial space. So how did how does one make themselves valuable to the marketplace, to where they can distribute their gift or talent? First thing to understand that as a child of God, everyone has a gift that is unique, a set of gifts that are unique. Those are inherently valuable. The challenge is, one, um, to learn every day. And now there's the Khan Academy. There are free courses from MIT, from Harvard, from University of Pennsylvania, from Stanford. Any of us can learn anything that we want online, any day, any time. So it's, and, and I got one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from a sociology professor in college. And, and this is when um, I was really being obnoxious because I was a chemistry major, right? And, and, and a econ major was upset because the federal government was giving science and engineering majors higher uh, levels in the government for several for summer jobs. And I told her, I said, well, you know, science and engineering, we're just smarter, right? So I, so I said, you pick a, any non-science course and I'll ace it. She made a mistake of picking a sociology course. And so I digress. The major thing is that this professor said, Whatever you choose to do for your life, work, make it something that you would do if you never got paid. Mm. That you just, you just like doing it. Now, I have to admit sometimes, um, so for instance, I I have um, family members who are artists, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they need help translating their gift into cash. How do you get your art seen? How that kind of thing, right? Right. Um, But increasingly, there are more and more folks who are happy to help others with the business part of getting their gift um, into the marketplace. Um, And so I would say, encourage anyone who wants to give me a call, I'll happily talk to you and or refer you to a lot of my friends who were doing it. And I know you know bunches of people that can help folks make that transition. I love that. So how can people get in contact with you if they want to learn more about, um, maybe they think, hey, I have a good business that could be a pot, you could consider for your portfolio or uh, something of that nature. Uh, how, how should people get in contact with you if they'd like to? Well, well, uh, uh, you know, you, you have my email. They can certainly email me. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, right. Phil G. Lewis. You can catch me on Facebook, and uh, 
Although I'll, I'll warn you, if you get on my Facebook page, it gets a little <laughs> hairy. We have some hot discussions on my Facebook page. But yeah, I, I'll be happy to talk with anybody anytime. Oh, appreciate that. Dr. Phil, the final question we asked every, every guest on the show is, and you weren't prepped for this, uh, what is the difference between one's gift and one's purpose? One's gift and one's purpose. Ah, well, any one of us can have one or multiple gifts. We can be very good at doing a number of things. But our purpose is whatever God has in mind for us, for our lives, right? And he might need a multifaceted somebody in this particular space, or he might need somebody with one special gift over here. So that's where I tell people all the time, write down your life plan and then talk about it with God. Because in the end, it's where does God want you to go? That that will be your purpose, where you should be headed. Beautiful, beautiful. Dr. Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing so much value and wisdom with the people. I truly appreciate you. My pleasure, and uh, God bless you. Appreciate what you're doing. Appreciate you. Uh, uh, I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Dear listener, I would like to thank you so much for listening to How I Discover My Gift with yours truly, David D. Simons. As a token of my appreciation, I would love to give to you my most important piece of work to date, and it's called the Purpose Gift Tape. It's a motivational mixtape geared towards helping you to identify your gifts, which ultimately lead to you discovering your purpose. This is a six-track album I poured my heart and soul into. It includes beautiful beats and amazing spoken word over it, and I'd love to give that to you as a free gift, as a token of my appreciation for being a part of the community. So to get your copy, all you need to do is go to podcast.daviddsimons.com. That's podcast.david, the middle initial D, Simons, S-I-M-O-N-S.com, and get yours today. Thank you for being a listener. I'll catch you on the next episode. How I Discover My Gift with David D. Simons is proud to be of the amazing and illustrious Alive Podcast Network.